First of all, there's a verse in the Quran that says, we created you into nations and tribes so that you may get to know one another. So right there we see that diversity was intended by God and the purpose is to get to know different kinds of people. Uh, and you also have the golden rule in Islam, right? Once for your, there's a famous hadith or statement attributed to the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, and of course, many Muslims here will say, peace be upon him in Arabic or in English. Peace, um, and the hadith, the statement is that none of you truly has faith until you wish for your brother what you wish for yourself. And one of the most famous commentators on the Qur'an, a scholar named An-Nawawi, who is known as maybe a fairly conservative scholar, you could say, he said that this, does not, this is not referring to brothers and sisters in Islam. This is referring to brothers and sisters in humanity. And for many Muslims, there is a, um, there's something spiritual and meaningful about listening to the Qur'an, reciting the Qur'an, reading the Qur'an. And um, usually the verses that really touch people are the verses that talk about God and God's nature and God's mercy, loving mercy. In fact, almost every chapter of the Qur'an begins with, in the name of God, the Lord of mercy, the bestower of mercy. Uh, and of course, there are different translations, the beneficent, the merciful, etc., and so this concept of mercy, is, you, you find it at the, you know, before reading almost every chapter of the Qur'an. And, there's, and this concept of mercy, it's not just mercy, it's loving mercy. Uh, actually, the, the term is, it comes from rahma in Arabic, rahma, which is related to the term rahim, which is the womb of the mother, the center of love and mercy. And so, and so one feels a sense of peace when thinking about this, when thinking about God, when thinking about God's nature. And, and for, I think for many Muslims, that's what gives them a sense of peace, uh, is knowing that you are in a creation, uh, you are in a, in a, in a context, uh, a universe established by this loving, this merciful and loving being. This is God Unites, finding spiritual unity in religious diversity. Welcome to God Unites, where we find spiritual kinship across religious faiths and explore topics of common interest, such as in our last episode, which was about freedom of religion. Today, I'm especially pleased to be joined by my good friend, Muhammad Khalil. Muhammad is Professor of Religious Studies, Director of the Muslim Studies Program, and Adjunct Professor in the College of Law at Michigan State University. His specialty is Islamic thought, and much of his research revolves around Muslim conceptions of and interactions with non-Muslims. We first met when he was an assistant professor of religion and visiting professor of law at the University of Illinois in Urbana. After we got acquainted, I sat in on a class that he taught at the law school on Islamic law. He's the author of several books, of most interest to us today being Islam and the Fate of Others, The Salvation Question, which was published 
by Oxford University Press. And he has another project of interest to us today, what he calls Muslims in the Midwest, which is an oral and visual history project with the aim of documenting the varied experiences of American Muslims in the Midwest. I can't explain why, but I've always felt a sense of brotherhood with Muhammad. He, I'll embarrass him here, but he seems to glow with an inner light that makes him an ideal guest for this program. Muhammad, welcome to God Unites. Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure to be with you. And uh, yeah, like, like you said, there's a feeling of brotherhood that I feel when, I, when I'm with you, and I appreciate you inviting me. Well, one of the reasons I thought of you and wanted to have this conversation with you in an episode arises out of what I see as widespread misconceptions about Islam and Muslims. Speaking as I am, as a person who lived and worked over five years in predominantly Muslim countries in the Arab Middle East, including the better part of a year in Iraq and later four and a half years in Egypt. And for that matter, even people with a more accurate understanding of Islam seem to focus primarily on the legalistic dimension of Islamic law rather than the spirit of the religion and the spirituality of devout Muslims, which is what I'd like to start off discussing with you today. So why don't we start off talking about some misconceptions, including about what it is that makes the religion work for so many people? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, as you pointed out, there, there is a legal dimension and there's, uh, there are other dimensions to Islam. And I think for many Muslims, the when they think of Islam, the first thing they think about is perhaps not law, but maybe the spirit of the religion. And for instance, the recitation of the Quran and the meaning and the message of the Quran. You know, the Quran has, according to the usual count, 6,236 verses. Of those, the vast majority are non-legal. In fact, the number of verses that are legal uh, it depends on who you ask and how they're counting, but it could be 500 to 600, and that's a very generous count. I mean, you're, now you're counting verses that talk about prayer. Uh, but if you look at what we think of when we think of law, uh, verses about, let's say, uh, civil law, commercial law, uh, criminal law, we're talking about maybe 80 verses or so. So the vast, and that's again out of 6,236 verses. So the bulk of the Quran is actually non-legal. And for many Muslims, there is a um, there's something spiritual and meaningful about listening to the Quran, reciting the Quran, reading the Quran, and um, usually the verses that really touch people are the verses that talk about God and God's nature and God's mercy, loving mercy. In fact, almost every chapter of the Quran begins with, "In the name of God." the Lord of mercy, the bestower of mercy. Uh, and of course, there are different translations, the beneficent, the merciful, etc. And so this concept of mercy, is, you, you find it at the, you know, before reading almost every chapter of the Quran. And, there's, and this concept of mercy, it's not just mercy, it's loving mercy. Uh, actually, the, the term is, it comes from rahma in Arabic, rahma, which is related to the term rahim, which is the womb of the mother, the center of love and mercy. And so, and so one feels a sense of peace when 
thinking about this, when thinking about God, when thinking about God's nature. And, and for, I think for many Muslims, that's what gives them a sense of peace, uh, is knowing that you are in a creation, uh, you are in a, in a, in a context, uh, a universe established by this loving, this merciful and loving being. And um, so I think that's a great point to point out is that there, it's, not, it's not just about the law. The law is a means to an end. Islamic law is a means to an end. And that is to be in line with the will of God, the way of God, the sharia. Sharia means the, the path, the path that you take to be in line with God. Um, and of course, there are about as many interpretations of sharia as there are Muslims. And like any path, there are rules of the road, so to speak, to be on the path and signs and things of that sort uh, to, uh, to govern so people aren't bumping into each other mm -hmm. and... and uh, you can navigate this uh, large masses of people on our highways, you know, without mm -hmm. uh, in an orderly manner moving forward, all headed toward their destination. And that's essentially what you're talking about. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, to be clear, there are some things that Muslims generally agree on, you know, so it's not, you know, completely, it's not as if everything is debated and disagreed upon. No, there are things Muslims generally agree on. Um, for example, the importance of prayer and um, certainly the vast majority, I mean, there are, of course, going to be exceptions, but the vast majority of Muslims believe in daily prayer. They believe in fasting the month of Ramadan, uh, giving alms or zakat to those in need and so on. So there are some basic things that Muslims agree on. But then once you get into the details, once you go beyond those things, those basic things, you will find a lot of diversity. And that's kind of inherent in any time speaking as a lawyer, yes. that we talk about legalistic sorts of things. Yes, absolutely. Now, one of the, as you talk about mercy, and we talk, when we think about misconceptions of Islam, I think it's a fairly widespread misconception that Muslims believe in mercy for Muslims, mm. but not for other people, non-Muslims. Now, this is, we'll talk more about this when we talk about your book, which directly relates to that. But could you share with us a little bit more about that? What is the, what is the attitude of Islam and, and as a religion and Muslims as a people, which, which varies toward non-Muslims? Yeah, it's a great question. First of all, there's a verse in the Quran that says, we created you into nations and tribes so that you may get to know one another. So right there, we see that diversity was intended by God. And the purpose is to get to know different kinds of people. Uh, and you also have the golden rule in Islam, right? Once for your, there's a famous hadith or statement attributed to the Prophet Muhammad uh, and of course, many Muslims here will say, peace be upon him in Arabic or in English. Peace, um, and the hadith, the statement is that none of you truly has faith until you wish for your brother what you wish for yourself. And one of the most famous commentators on the Quran, a scholar named An-Nawawi, who is known as maybe a fairly conservative scholar, you could say, he said that this does... Not, this is not referring to brothers and sisters in Islam, 
This is referring to brothers and sisters in humanity. And, and this is significant because here, this is, you know, just a few centuries after the Prophet dies. It's a conservative, well-respected scholar making this declaration. And I think that is something many people miss. Um, and I think part of the challenge is that there are verses in the Qur'an that condemn a group called the Kuffar or the Kafirun. And how we choose to interpret that word or that terminology is critical. Because um, the word, if you look at it linguistically, it's referring to those who cover the truth, who conceal the truth, who reject the truth. And if somebody chooses to translate that as non-Muslim, which is, by the way, what happens in Islamic law. So it's, here's the challenge, too, is, that, is the challenge of terminology. I always tell my students that one of the biggest challenges when talking about Islam is the challenge of terminology. Um, in the Qur'an, the Qur'an talks about Muslims, people who submit to God, and, and mu'mins, people who have faith, who believe. But in Islamic law, um, a Muslim is just anybody who says, I'm a Muslim publicly, but it's understood that in the eyes of God, that person might not really be a Muslim. That person could be a hypocrite. That person could, you know, might not have true faith. Similarly, the term kafir uh, in the Quran, again, is somebody who rejects faith, who conceals the truth, etc. In Islamic law, it's just anybody who's not Muslim. That's how they use the term in Islamic law. So now the challenge is, if I take that legal understanding and apply it to the Qur'an, now that means anybody who's not Muslim is condemned in the strongest possible terms. And this is, and I said, you know, I don't want to jump, jump ahead here, but this is kind of what I look at in my book, is the question of what do Muslim scholars historically, not, not contemporary Muslims who are living in America like myself, Muslims living at a time when Muslims are the majority, they represent the dominant culture in their respective societies. What do they say about the fate of non-Muslims? Because they don't feel the pressures I feel. I, I, I grew up surrounded by non-Muslims. My school, I, I'm the only maybe Muhammad in my, my elementary school and middle school. Um, so, you know, I, I, have a certain, I have certain pressures and certain feelings that they wouldn't have. So that's what I was interested to see. What did they say about this issue? Um, and I think once we look at those, look at it that way, we see, oh, wait a minute, it's much more uh, nuanced and complicated than we thought. Well, one of the things that's impressed me about your choice of topics to devote yourself to with all the considerable, enormous amount of work that's involved in writing a book, you haven't shied away from topics that, go right to the heart of what we're talking about right now. Now, I, I'll mention a, another book that you've written. Let me grab this one. Okay. Jihad, Radicalism, and the New Atheism. Now, in this one, you directly confront a misconception, not only uh, by non-Muslims, but also by many Muslims, about the essence of the religion of Islam, and one of the things that I experienced when I was in Iraq first, which was back during the time of the Saddam trial, I was a legal advisor to the Iraqi High Tribunal, uh, helping them with investigations that they were conducting. 
And in the course of that, I was working with many Iraqis who were Muslim. And I was impressed by the spirit that I felt from them. And later in, in Egypt, as I lived there for four and a half years, I, I just felt a sense of spiritual kinship. I felt at home there. It was easy to talk about things of religion and then come back to the United States and hear what people think about Islam and Muslims. And the gap is enormous. It's almost like the difference between day and night. They're almost diametrically opposed. Now, later, as a federal prosecutor, I was assigned to uh, work on, with counterterrorism and, in fact, prosecuted a couple of terrorism cases, including a case against an al-Qaeda sleeper agent. Now, in the course of that, you get exposed to a view, a radical view of Islam that is very different than what I experienced in either Iraq or Egypt and in my associations with Muslims, including you. Now, what accounts for that gap among these radicalized Muslims? And then the commentators who seem to think that these radicals, these terrorists, have it right. And people like you are the ones who are wrong, who are deceived because you can't read the, you know, your, your own scriptures, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so you, you've directly dealt with those. I mean, if anybody wants to wants a scholarly and credible view, I mean, this is this book uh, that you wrote about uh, jihad, radicalism, and the new atheism directly confronts that. Now, we don't want to get off onto that right now. I will just say to those who are listening who are not familiar with Islam and Muslims, take it from somebody who is a devout Christian who has lived in the Arab Middle East in predominantly Muslim countries and who who was, was surrounded where I was the opposite of you. I'd be the only, <laughs> the, the only non-Muslim in many situations. But I felt so at home, so comfortable here. And it was alarming to come back to the United States and find such prejudices, such misconceptions about Islam. I have considerable library on Islamic law. My wife can attest to that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and we sh- my wife and I share this, this love for the Muslim people and for Islam as a religion. So you surrounded by all of these misconceptions, have, one, academically, gone straight at it. <laughs> and uh, But you also, along the way, not just intellectually up here, but you've had an own, your own personal journey. We would love to hear about that, your own personal experience, not as, like me, an observer of Muslims and Islam, but as a Muslim. Mm. and as one who submits yeah. in the sense of Islam yeah. and Muslim. Tell us about your own personal journey. Yeah. Well, it begins in East Lansing, Michigan, which is where I am today, so I haven't gone very far. Um, and, you know, being the one of, of just a few Muslims in my, you know, in my schooling, in my, especially in my high school, high school, we had a few Muslims, but the point is, is that I was always a minority and, uh, but we would spend many summers in Egypt, in Cairo specifically, 
So I would get to experience being part of the majority when it comes to religion. Uh, of course, I was never really accepted in either context because in Egypt I'm Americanized, and here I'm the Egyptian, right? So, yeah. But 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 on the other hand, I look. At, you can also look at it from the positive side, which is you get to be connected to two cultures now instead of just one. So, but in any case, yeah, I've always um, sort of grappled with religion because I mean, I remember being a five year old and asking my father, "Why do we believe? Why are we Muslim? Like, why do we believe this?" Uh, because you know everybody around me doesn't believe this. So I've always grappled with uh, belief, and especially by the time I got to high school and college, it was the question of God's existence that I really grappled with. Um, and I remember, um, you know, it, being a sophomore in college and having um, really uh, anxiety and, and, and depression and panic all at once because the idea that what if, you know, what if God does not exist? That really bothered me because that's you know related to that is also the idea of no life after death. So it means that there's no plan, there's no control, and when you die, that's it, it's the end. And as a as a second year college student, of course, I had thought about it before, but it, I really it, it really uh, uh, hit me hard that year in particular. And I had to I I grappled with the questions of of God's existence. I would take philosophy courses. I would you know, have all kinds of conversations with people. Uh, I would buy books, you know, I'd buy like, for example, the book, Why I Am Not a Muslim. You know, I wanted to see what are people saying who reject my, what I believe in? What do, what do they say? And I, want, I wanted to grapple with these questions. And out of that, I came to develop uh, what I think is a stronger belief in God after all of these struggles, after all, you know, these debates and and going back and forth internally. The, out, the end result is a stronger faith in God. I'm not going to say that there aren't moments of doubt. Of course there are. But, but certainly a much, like it's, I'm at, you know, I'm at a point now where I can't imagine not believing in God. You know, it's, it's so ingrained in me now. Um, and, uh, and related to that is the belief in Islam. And, and with regard to Islam, you know, for me, I, I was always fascinated by religion. I, I decided, you know, uh, maybe I could become a professor of religious studies. That's what I was thinking as a high schooler. But the message I got was that, no, that's not a realistic career option. Um, and, you know, maybe you should think about something else like medicine or, you know, something else. Well, I saw my orthodontist was making $3 million a year. He retired at 39. So I thought, perfect, that's what I'll do. That way I can study all the religion I want because, you know, I'll be retired at 39. Uh, by the way, I'm in my 40s now. And I'm not retired anytime. <laughs> not going to retire anytime soon. But I'm happy, and I'll tell you why in a second. So anyway, I'm in dental school. 9/11 happens, and 9/11 also shook me. That that's a that's a moment that really shook me. And because here you have people who are claiming to be Muslim, who are quoting things I'm not familiar with in my own religion, to justify what was clearly one of the most disturbing, if not the most disturbing thing I've ever witnessed on telev live television. And um, so it shook me, and right away I began to apply to graduate programs in Islamic studies. I had already, my, my undergraduate degree was already in Islamic studies, but I took all the pre-dental, you know, the prerequisites for dental school. So I applied to graduate programs, uh, and I got accepted to a couple, and but I, you know, I was, the message I was getting was, hold off, you know, f finish dental school first. 
finish dental school first. Okay. So I deferred my admission uh, and I continue, I said, okay, I'm just going to continue with dental school, but I deferred just in case I changed my mind later. Well, second year, toward the end of my second year of dental school, I finally quit and I went into Islamic studies. And, you know, 9-11 kind of, I mean, the fact that I would quit dental school, and by the way, I'm still in debt from those, that year and almost two years of dental school, <laughs> still in debt from those two years of dental school. But, um, you know, I, I quit and I told myself, I don't care what happens to me from here on out. I need to do what I'm interested in. I need to pursue, I need to study what drives me, what, what gives me, what, what I'm passionate about, which is religious studies. And it was a difficult, oh, by the way, I was already married when I, right before dental school, I got married. So you can imagine at my wedding, my father-in-law saying he's going, going to be a future dentist. And so you can imagine how hard it was to quit because now it's not just my family, it's her family. And so. Okay. I, I have yeah. a question here. Yeah. Looking back at this, can you see the hand of God in that? I do. I do, to be honest. There were um, just these things along the way, moments where Something you know, just if one thing is off, my whole this I wouldn't I couldn't have ended up where I am today. Uh, everything had to kind of fall in place. Um, it would probably take a little bit too long to get into all the details, but I'll just say that I was very fortunate to um, to to take the path that I took. It, it, it worked out perfectly for me because first of all, my field you know uh, it just so happens that. The year I'm looking for jobs, many jobs opened up. <laughs> so so it, that worked out nicely. And then, so I, 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 my first position was at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and um, was there for four years, four great years. Uh, but then there was a, a position that opened up in my hometown. And, you know, it's interesting because when I first, uh, when I was in dental school, the message I was getting was, you're not go going to forget working where you want to work. Um you're, you know, you could end up anywhere if you're lucky to have a job to begin with. And that's and then I have to say that is I, I don't take this for granted because I know I have many colleagues, many friends. I know it's not easy. It's not it is a difficult field to be in. Um, so and what's interesting is that 9-11 appears on the first page of the two books you just mentioned. You know, the second one I can understand, Jihad, Radicalism and the New Atheism. And boy, did I pick every hot button word you could imagine for that title. But the first one, even the first one, looking at the fate of non-Muslims, 9-11 appears on the first page of that book, too. And I find that 9-11 has really, um, it's, it's kind of been the thing that has driven me, uh, trying to understand what happened that day. Because, you know, many people will look to Osama bin Laden and say, look, he's a devout Muslim. He's quoting things that I, most Muslims are not familiar with. And when Muslims disagree and say Islam is peace, they are a bunch of wishy-washy, apologetic, westernized Muslims. They or liars. Or liars. Oh, yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Or liars. They're doing taqiyya, and we can't trust them. Taqiyya is dissimulation, when you pretend that you are one way, but you're really another. Which I always tell, I always say that if that's the case, then that's incredible. That you have a bunch of people lying simultaneously without cracking a smile or, you know, like, just really good liars, apparently. But anyway... And all, uh, with the, all with the same story and with the, the same, same story. The same, absolutely, yeah. The yeah. same. How did they do that? How did they right. all get together and <laughs> coordinate so, this? Maybe you should ask my wife. I'm an awful liar. So, I mean, just the fact that there would be this, you yeah. know, anyway. But the point is, is that, you know, I, um, I wanted to understand what happened on 9 11. You know, Osama bin Laden, 
he's quoting things most Muslims don't know. Is he, what's going on there? And that's actually to that book, Jihad, Radicalism, and the New Atheism. I'm, I'm really focusing on that because then you also have in the, in the West, here in the West, uh, the so-called New Atheists who, who really, they, 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 hang, they latch onto this. They say, that's true Islam. Like, like what bin Laden is doing and what ISIS is doing, that's literal. That's if you take the scripture literally, right? And yeah, there are moments where there are examples where they are literalists, but not when it comes to terrorism. And that's the part, that's the, the, the discovery that I found. That's, this is what I found to be very interesting is that you could actually see, you can pinpoint where bin Laden clearly doesn't understand basics of the tradition. And this is not some kind of apologetic dismissal of bin Laden. I'll give you a very simple example. Right after 9-11, he is interviewed by Al Jazeera. And in this interview, he says that in our religion, yeah, we're not supposed to kill innocent people, but if the enemy targets our women and children, we can target their women and children. We can target their women and children. This is not collateral. Even though in the same interview, he'll, he kind of contradicts himself. But anyway, we can target them. And this is not, Bin Laden says, this is not my opinion. This is the opinion of, and he gives four names, four major scholars, Muslim scholars, who supposedly said this. Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyyah, these are uh, scholars from the 14th century, CE. Uh, and then he mentions a couple of others, Al-Qurtubi and Al-Shawkani. And Al-Qurtubi is a medieval, is a pre-modern commentator of the Qur'an. And Bin Laden even takes a moment to praise Al-Qurtubi in particular. He says, Al-Qurtubi, may God bless him in his commentary in the Qur'an. This is what he says, if the enemy targets our women and children, we can target their women and children. And I remember reading this and thinking, huh, I don't remember those scholars saying that. I do remember Ibn Taymiyyah having some views that, you know, I mean, he, you know he, he makes it clear if anybody attacks you in any way, you can, yeah, okay, then you can fight them. And, but the idea of targeting women and children, because the enemy targeted your women and children, I don't remember them saying that. And what was fascinating was to see that Al-Qurtubi, that, that scholar that Bin Laden took a moment to praise, says the exact opposite in his commentary on the fifth chapter of the Qur'an, Verse 8, Surah 5, verse 8. He explicitly says, if the enemy targets our women and children, that's how they worded it, if they target our women and children, we are not permitted to target their women and children, even if it caused us great anger. And I remember reading it and my jaw just dropped because Bin Laden was quoting somebody, invoking somebody who said the exact opposite. Imagine and, that. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Most people don't even know Al-Qurtubi even exists. So when he's quoting, when he cites this, people are like, oh, he knows his stuff. But he doesn't. <laughs> and that's well, the point this is I something that this is something that in the course of my work with doing counterterrorism work that I found that uh, as people studied the psychology of the radicals. Now, this is, this is true on virtually any. This isn't just those who use Islam as their supposed legitimizing ideology. Terrorists almost always have a legitimizing ideology and, mm-hmm. and they, they seize upon instrumentally yes. uh, one ideology or another and mm-hmm. turn it 
to, in their minds, justify what they are inclined to do anyway. They're yes. angry about something. They're disaffected individuals. And so yes. they combination of a disaffected individuals and they seize upon some sort of legitimizing ideology that uh, convinces them that to do something horrific is right. And that, I mean, my goodness, if God approves of doing something so evil, then they've completely twisted their concept of God around backwards. Yeah. Now, what what they found is they study the psychology of people who are engaged in terrorism different types of terrorism, including domestic terrorism, they find that in the case of those who use Muslim, uh, use Islam as their legitimizing ideology, supposedly, there's an inverse relationship between their radicalism and their understanding of the religion. Mm. Meaning, the more people understand about Islam, the less likely they are to be a terrorist. And the mm. more the more likely they are to be a terrorist, they find that the less they know about Islam. Yes. Hmm. Yes. Well, I'll tell it's you. It's an interesting. Now, that's, I'm saying yeah. that as somebody who was a professional in the field because there are lots of commentators out there who claim to be experts on Islam who say the opposite. Yes. Well, like you. I mean, okay, you can claim what you will. The people who are the experts know better. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing is that these pseudo experts, they them, you know, they they are kind of they kind of they can pull off what Bin Laden pulls off. They quote things that most people are not familiar with, and so then it seems compelling. Uh, and so you you really have to be a scholar uh, to to begin to see how they're misusing the sources, and that requires a lot of time to study to study these things. So I can understand why it's not easy to dismiss these people, whether it's well, let's yeah, I I. I you know, you and I could probably yeah, continue yeah, yeah. to talk about this for a long time. <laughs> yes. Uh, I want to loop back to where you were yeah. at uh, 9-11. Yes. And here, I mean, in a lot of ways, this impacted not you not only personally, but professionally. Yes. Uh, as you've been discussing. But let's talk about the personal side of that, mm. if you'd pick up that. Yeah. Well, I... Uh, you know, as I mentioned in college, I was grappling with the existence of God, the question of the existence of God, and I still I continue to grapple with that uh, after nine eleven, uh, and and I finally began grad school the fall of two thousand three uh, in Islamic studies, and and even then I remember actually um, that year, that first year, I grappled with the question a lot actually, and but you know at, at some point um, some things begin to make more and more sense to you. You know, for me, there were a couple of things that, um, I guess you could say there are three things that kind of um, helped me to increase my faith in God. The first was, as an undergraduate even, just the recognition of consciousness, the fact that I know I exist. I, I'm not going to tell you I can prove anything with that philosophically. No, I cannot. But just just the recognition that I know I exist um, that, that there's more to me than electrons, neutrons, and protons. Just that realization alone was the first kind of like indicator that, no, 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 there's something here. There's something here that's special, and I, I can't put my finger on it. I don't know what it is. I can't prove anything with this, but there's something going on here. And then um, as I began to think about, okay, how did we get here? And again, I can't, this is not like a proof. This is not, it, but just... 
just an, an, an indicator that there's or, or just some signify something to signify that this is special. We're just thinking about how we got here and why is there something rather than nothing and why um, you know could there be an infinite regression of causes in the past and now this. No, there, there's something about this that does, you know, when you remove God from the picture, some, it just, something doesn't make sense about our existence. So just kind of thinking through it that way. And then the third thing would be just something that's hard to describe. It's something more spiritual, something that I can't describe. Um, just a feeling, uh, a connection. Um, and it's nothing that I could even begin to describe. It's just, it's, it's, um, uh, I'll say this, in 2007, I performed the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. And there were things that I experienced there, moments, I'd rather not get into them, but they were just moments that I just felt a connection. And um, it was, it, it just, I, I just, I felt there was, you know, and I know, I know from the other side, one could say, well, confirmation bias, right? You had an experience and, oh, this just confirmed what you already believed. But no, I, I feel there was something more, <laughs> but I can't prove it. It's just, it's something that's indescribable. And I just, I, I just leave it at that. Well, this is the sort of thing I think that people of faith can relate to because God put us down on earth in a lot of different religious environments and traditions. Mm -hmm. He knows that. And just as you were saying, you know, there's a purpose for that. And personally, I think part of that is to learn to see the face of God in all of his children, that we are literally spirit brothers and sisters. And we come at him with a, because he is our father, the father of our spirits. We're drawn there. Now, somebody tries to explain Try to explain love. I mean, you can have some biological rationale for why love exists or something like that, but love can be quite biologically irrational with some of the things it can lead you to. And, uh, you know, in protecting and and even, even uh, well, everybody knows what I'm talking about, that you can do crazy things in the name of love. Well, when when you feel the love of God drawing you to him, uh, that's just really hard to explain to somebody who hasn't experienced it. And yet to someone who has experienced it, they know exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. As yes. do I. Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, as an example of that, when I was in Iraq, um, I had I, I became very close friends uh, with a uh, one of the investigators for the investigative judge uh, that I was working, that I was assisting and uh, his name was the, the investigator, Saad. And as we were, I had a, uh, an Iraqi Christian, Kurdish Christian translator with me, and we were uh, meeting with the judge. And the judge, I mean, everybody who has been in the Middle East understands, you know, that there's somebody in the, uh, on the staff who brings tea, uh, Shy or chai, <laughs> and and uh, anyway, I in my religion we don't drink tea, and so we had had a discussion earlier about this, and uh, he respected that, and so he had he would always make sure that there was some form, you know, there was uh, seven up, seven as he would call it, 
or something like that. But this day I was fasting. And because in in my in my church, in my religion, we fast once a month. The, the first Sunday of each month is a general rule. And uh, fast for 24 hours, no approximately no food or drink. And so I was explaining to him that this day was a Sunday and I was fasting. And he said, oh, you're like Saad. He fasts all the time. <laughs> and the Christian translator turned to me and said, you fast? And I said, well, yes. And she said, why? And as I started to explain... Saad would jump in, and the two of us, two different religions, mm. explained the spirit of the purpose and the spirit of fasting so to this to this young lady, and there was this spiritual kinship. We spoke the same language of the spirit, even though our languages or our 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 religious traditions were different, and fasting was something that brought us closer to God. That's fascinating. And, and I just learned something new. I didn't know about this fast. So that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you've, uh, you've probably had in the course of worship and study of the Quran, you've felt this connection with God. What sorts of things, when do you feel this experience in mm. more, in less dramatic settings than yes. the Hajj. Yes. I think when I'm reading a verse or listening, usually for me, I like to listen to the Quran while reading it. Um, that for me is the ultimate because I'm experiencing it intellectually and spiritually. But I think when I come to passages that refer to God's greatness and vastness and, and majesty, um, you just feel overwhelmed. Uh, I just feel overwhelmed when I come to these passages. Um, or verses that talk about God's loving mercy. They, they move me. Um, these kinds of passages. Um, and, you know, there's a beautiful verse that refers to God as the light of the heavens and earth. Um, just passages like those, they, um, they are, there's something, it's very beautiful, it's very powerful, and you just, you, you kind of, you see yourself as a speck <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, but you also feel like you are, you're being held. Um, even though you are a speck, you feel that there is, because there are verses in the Quran even that refer to God sort of being everywhere you are, everywhere you look, everywhere you turn, there's the face of God. God is closer to people than their um, jugular vein or carotid artery, depending on how you translate it. Um, so you also feel very secure um, in, in that regard. Um, so I think verses that, that describe God are very moving. And of course, there are stories in the Quran that are also very moving. The story of Joseph, Yusuf, the prophet Joseph, uh, of course, also a biblical figure. Um, the story in the Quran is very moving. It's, uh, it's an incredible story. And, and so there are stories that are also very moving, uh, where lessons are learned. And, and those are, beautiful moments also because you know there are little subtleties about in the in the story and if you catch those subtleties it's like you've uncovered something that's that's beautiful a, a hidden message a beautiful message there uh, and i find that to be very beautiful as well you've you've repeatedly talked about this sense of awe or 
deep feeling. You've used the word mercy. Mm-hmm. About the word mercy, you've referred to mercy several times in the course of this conversation, and that brings us to the topic of your of your book, Islam and the Fate of Others: The Salvation Question. All right, now this is an interesting question. I know when I found out you were writing a book about it, I I told you at the time. I have got to read this book because this is this is really an interesting topic because there is this idea among many religions that there's only one way to God and that's our way. And yet and you directly went at that in in your fashion just as you do in this book. What drew you to that topic and where did pursuing that topic lead you? Yeah. Well, this was my dissertation topic, and what's interesting is that it wasn't my original dissertation topic. My original dissertation topic was going to be it's going to have something to do with Islamic intellectual history, and um, specifically, I was going to look at the Maturidi school of Islamic theology and its view on ethics. Um, but at one point, I, I kind of just stopped myself and said, "Wait a minute! I just quit dental school, and I'm still in debt, and I did all this because of what you know what I what I have a, what I have a passion for." So why don't I pursue a topic that I find to be genuinely interesting, that's really driving me? Why limit myself to what they want me to study at the university? So I came up with this idea, this proposal. I want to know what do Muslim scholars say about the fate of non-Muslims? Can a non-Muslim go to heaven? Um, and not just a non-Muslim, could non-Muslims, many non-Muslims potentially, possibly, go to heaven? Um, and, um, and is there, uh, what are their justifications? Uh, is it just wishful thinking or do they actually have something there, uh, scriptural that they can point to? Uh, and, and then in, in addition to this, there's the question of hell. What is the purpose of hell? What is the duration of hell? These are questions with philosophical implications also, because it tells us something about God. What is the nature of God? And so, uh, I finally put forward this proposal to my dissertation committee, and they approved. Of course, I was going to look at it historically as a historian. I was going to look at the views of specific individuals. And I chose individuals who are extremely influential. They're not representative of all the different schools of thought. Um, you know, overwhelmingly Sunni scholars that I looked at. But I did look at some Shi'i scholars as well. But the big four that I looked at were Al-Ghazali, maybe arguably the most influential Islamic thinker of all time, maybe. Um, number two was Ibn Arabi, the famous Sufi thinker, again, extremely influential. Uh, number three was Ibn Taymiyyah, again, extremely influential. Uh, and, and of course, very different from Ibn Arabi. Ibn Arabi is a Sufi, a mystic. Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah is, um, has a reputation of being rather, maybe conservative is the word we could use. Uh, he, his writings are uh, often cited in the context of, let's say, Saudi Arabia today among scholars of Islamic law, and, and of course, up in many other contexts. Uh, and then the fourth scholar I looked at was a modern scholar, and that was Rashid Ridha, uh, who is a student of Muhammad Abdu. These are famous early 20th century figures. Uh, and so I looked at what they had to say, and it was just fascinating because what they said completely shocked me. It was unlike what I was expecting uh, in the sense that Al-Ghazali says that most of humanity will go to heaven. Most of humanity. 
eventually, you know, he does have a concept of, you know, somebody being punished for a time or maybe uh, just because, you know, they may have to endure some kind of trial during, you know, the day of judgment. Uh, but in the end, most of humanity goes to heaven and that it will be rare for somebody to remain in hell. And I thought that was shocking. That's unlike what I was taught <laughs> growing up. And if they did, as I read your book, it would be because they've insisted on it. Not yes. because God insisted on it, but yes. they insisted on it. Yes, great point. So for Al-Ghazali, it's, you know, it's, it's not, are you a non-Muslim or Muslim? It's how do you react to the revelation when you receive it? And if someone, um, first of all, they've never received it properly, or, you know, if they haven't received it at all, they would not be uh, culpable. And then, but even if they receive it properly, and they actively investigate it, for Al-Ghazali, that's sufficient to, to excuse that individual for not becoming Muslim. So he's still, to be clear, he's still... You know, insisting that you should, people, you know, he, he still believes in Islamic supersessionism. He's not, you know, he's not like many, you know, modern pluralists in that regard. He's still insisting on conversion to Islam, uh, but only if, you know, all these things have to be in place. In other words, you have to receive it properly. You have to receive it, uh, and, and um, then you completely reject it or ignore it, even though it's compelling to you. Um, that kind of thing. Um, now, and for Al-Ghazali, he has an expectation that if somebody hears about, you know, this aspect of, of Revelation and this aspect of the Prophet, that it would naturally be compelling. Okay. Uh, then you have Ibn Arabi, this, the mystic, the Sufi thinker. And Ibn Arabi says that if somebody doesn't find the Prophet Muhammad to be a messenger, they don't see him as a messenger then they could not be held accountable. They cannot be culpable before God. So that opens the door quite a bit. And he actually even speaks of there being, if I remember correctly, 5,000, what is it? I forget the exact number now, but 5,000 something degrees of paradise and only 10 or 12 are for Muslims. Meaning there are the overwhelming majority of the so-called degrees of uh, of people in he in heaven are non are not Muslim. They don't belong to the community of the Prophet Muhammad, and presumably that would include many people who lived after the era of Muhammad. And so you have that, and then he even says that the people who go to hell will actually begin to, and this is going to sound strange, but they'll begin to enjoy hell. Why? Because God is a God of overwhelming mercy. And there are statements attributed to the Prophet Muhammad where he says that God's mercy overwhelms his wrath, or in another version, overcomes his wrath. And so in the end, even the people in the fires of hell, the mercy overcomes them, and now they, they're not tortured anymore. Uh, and they, they actually find contentment. So that's interesting. And then you have Ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Taymiyyah, again, as I say, somebody who's influential, has a kind of conservative reputation, controversial and conservative reputation, and, uh, at least in, that's kind of his how he's known. Um, and is, by the way, often invoked by extremists, of course, wrong, I mean, wrongfully, incorrectly, 
but is often like I like I mentioned with, with Bin Laden earlier. Him, he quoted Ibn Taymiyyah as one of his uh, justifications for killing, targeting innocent people. Ibn Taymiyyah says, "Well, yeah, I mean, to you know, if somebody once they re- they hear about Islam, they have to become Muslim. So he's pretty, you know, he's pretty strict in that area. There's no ro- wiggle room there. But what's interesting and peculiar and, and interesting about uh, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah is that he says that." Um, and this is the last thing he wrote, it would seem, before his pen was confiscated, when he was imprisoned in the citadel of Damascus. He writes a treatise in which he argues that eventually, there are, you know, hell exists, people will spend time in hell, but eventually, all of humanity will leave hell and go to heaven. And that really shocked me. Because, first of all, I had never heard of a Muslim scholar holding that view, a pre-modern Muslim scholar holding that view. And then to find out of all people, Ibn Taymiyyah? And the last thing he writes? I mean, that was I was shocked by that. And then his student Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah would expand, would build on this argument in three works, expand on it, and so on. Now, I should mention, because there are going to be people who will Google this and who will look on. There are people who deny Ibn Taymiyyah said this, or they say he said it and changed his mind. Well, no, these are modern apologetics. Uh, we have no evidence of anybody back then denying this. And as I've said, his own student builds on it and expands on it. And it was probably the last thing Ibn Taymiyyah wrote before, you know, before he dies. So, so that was shocking. And then Rashid Rida, as we get into the modern period, you have Rashid Rida who kind of takes from in some sense, all three of these scholars, their views at least, kind of builds on, on the three views. So he says, um, yeah, most of humanity goes to heaven. The only people who are condemned are those who don't find it compelling, who just don't see it as possibly being the truth. And then he takes Ibn Taymiyyah's idea of everybody going to heaven in the end. He doesn't insist on it, but he seems to lean toward it. And so that's that was Rashid Rida's idea. And then, of course, I look at other people's views and responses and so on. But what was fascinating to me was that I was expecting that the vast majority of pre-modern Muslims would be exclusivists, who would say that anybody who is not Muslim goes to hell. But what I found, actually, was that there was always room, or almost always room, for some non-Muslims to go to heaven. Usually they would say, at the at a minimum, well, if they didn't hear about the religion, they're excused. And then you have others who go beyond that, as I've said before. So, so it was eye-opening for me. I was, uh, you know, and I, I, the last line of that book, I, or at, the end, at the end of that book, I say that we're left with all these very interesting ideas. None of them offers a definitive solution to, you know, to the question of, you know, what does Islam say, if we can speak of Islam in this way, what does Islam say about the fate of non-Muslims? None of them offers a definitive solution, but all of them, the scholars I look at, give us a good reason to take a hermeneutic leap of mercy, to go beyond what is explicit in the text without contradicting it, without necessarily contradicting it. And if you accept the premise that the ethos of the Qur'an compels this leap of mercy, then what you're left with is... Uh, a positive ambiguity, the kind of ambiguity that leaves believers with a deep sense of humility and hope for humanity. 
And for me, when I wrote that sentence, that last sentence of the book, it felt like a very spiritual moment. And I can't even describe it. But it's just this realization that, wow, God is great. And the world is, it's just, it's, it's yeah, God is great. That was my, my feeling. As I read it, as I listen to you, I, I am struck by what uh, they were probably experiencing is the, these views are rooted in the Quran and in religious tradition, uh, Hadith. Uh, I mean, these are, these are towering scholars. They're not just saying, this, this is my personal philosophy. That's They're right. saying, this is what I get out of these authoritative sources. That's right. And uh, it, there's a common theme. And I suspect that there's the hand of God, a revelatory process that's involved in the formation of these ideas and the directions that they take. I know in my own experience, uh, part of what, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, but I wasn't always. And I went through kind of a a process of asking many of the same questions of, as you. And one of the things that has never made any sense to me is that there were only two rewards, heaven or hell. Mm -hmm. And that somebody who got, as I used to say, uh, only half in jest, somebody who got one too many traffic tickets went to hell and the other yeah. person who's just almost virtually identical to them goes to heaven. I mean, that it made no sense to me. And I know people would say, well, that's not really the way it works. And I understand that. But, in in our tradition, uh, there's not just one heaven or hell. I mean, there's extremes, but that there's a spectrum. Uh, we even speak of three degrees of glory, and and then there's outer darkness, which is not a degree of glory. But the vast you have to work to get there, mm -hmm. and the vast majority would go to one of these degrees, and there's degrees within the degrees. And this is as a result of modern-day revelation that we accept, but that everyone will be in a place where they are comfortable and that our Heavenly Father, as our loving Father, wants all of his children to return to live with him, but not everybody's going to go all the way. But they're going to find their place and that God is just and merciful and that it doesn't matter. I mean, there's people coming from all sorts of religious traditions. He wants to draw them all to him, each on their own paths. That doesn't mean that all paths lead to God. Actually, most of them don't. But God draws people along many paths, individualized to him. And I think that that's the spirit of what you're saying. And you see, that resonates with me from two very different religious traditions, one Christian, one Muslim. Yes. And uh, i that's really what God Unites is all about, is that he does unite us. As we draw closer to him, uh, we draw closer to each other because the paths start to get closer and converge. Yes. You know, as you're saying this, I was, I'm reminded of uh, a conference presentation I gave in Amman, Jordan in 2005. It was the second world, I think it was second, World Congress of Middle East Studies. And I was presenting what I just presented just now, the, the views of these scholars. And I presented in the view of hell, everybody leaving hell and going to heaven. And, and right after uh, the, lecture, the, the panel, uh, a woman who belonged to a Dominican 
you know, Catholic group uh, came up to me and said that this is what her, I forget what term she used, but this is what her teacher told her as well, but said, don't tell others. It's a secret. And I was, it was what I what I thought was fascinating is that that's kind of what Ibn Taymiyyah says as well, <laughs> and and I just it was it was interesting to see this parallel, this over this this symbol, this commonality um, among a minority within a, within these larger groups, right? So in other words, the idea that everybody goes to heaven, or or that you know most of humanity or whatever could go to heaven, this is not the prevailing view among Muslims today. It's not the prevailing view among Christians. I don't. I don't think. I could be wrong, but I would think if you. No, didn't. you're. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So it was fascinating to see this 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 connection here um, within these uh, again different groups, Muslim, Christian, but to see this uh, commonality. Well, I think one of the things that's important for people is they get out of their own bubbles, because yep. uh, people can become very tribal in religion. And I've been exposed to the tribal mentality in the course of my professional career uh, in the Middle East. And part of that is anything that makes my tribe look good is true, and anything that makes my tribe look bad is false. Yeah. And anything, conversely, anything that makes competing tribes look good is false, and anything that makes them look bad is true. Yes. And you think, okay, that's the tribal mentality. Then I come back to the United States, and I think, oh, my goodness. If I hadn't been exposed to this in a different context, in the, in the context particularly in Iraq, which is quite tribal, um, I wouldn't have recognized it for what it is politically in the United States. But then, lo and behold, it dawned on me. The same is true religiously. Mm that we become tribal in our religious views. Now, there is such a thing as spiritual truth. There is such a thing as God. And as I said, not all paths lead to God. But there is a spirit that draws us to God, and that spirit we find in common with each other when we're on our own paths, whatever they may be. And uh, I think people need to get out more. They'll Absolutely. find they'll find that. So I really appreciate Muhammad you sharing these things with us. I mean, this is the this feels like it. This is the beginning of a great discussion. But time wise, we <laughs> need to be drawing it to a close. Now, if if you were to kind of wrap things up, just and share just one thing, or one uh, thought or theme with the people who are listening, what would it be? What would you want to share with them? Well. That's a good question. Um, I, I I don't know why, but the first thing that popped into my mind is the very, I guess, technically second verse of the first chapter of the Quran. So the first chapter of the Quran begins with, in the name of God, the Lord of mercy, the bestower of mercy. And then the verse says, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, all praise and thanks is due to God, Lord of the worlds, in the plural. And... And so you get the sense of one God over the great diversity of creation and the vast, this vast creation with all, its, with all its diversity, with all the different kinds of people and, and so on, and creatures and so on. And I think 
you know, your, your podcast is called God Unites. And that just comes, that comes to mind, you know, that this is, there's a God over this great vastness with a lot of diversity overseeing it all. Uh, and all praise and thanks is due to that God. Amen. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Yes. And on that note, I think we can, we can conclude. This is God Unites, finding spiritual unity in religious diversity.